from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. So good, uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm very honoured uh, to be invited here at the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, so I give them a major thank, thank you. Um, it's an opportunity for me to be able to convey to you uh, the work that, that we do uh, in, our, in my office uh, because um, reports are not always easy to read. Uh, nobody has a lot of time. So I don't define myself now as a pilot or investigator anymore, but tonight more as a storyteller, and it's a safety storytelling. Uh, I think it's, it's really the best way to, um, to take the, uh, the matter. So I was very much impressed by uh, the last presentations that I saw. Uh, it made me realize how complicated and how difficult it is to, to build those devices and the amount of intelligence and energy that you all put collectively in the business. So I say thank you because uh, uh, our, my colleague pilots uh, need this as they face difficult times or easy times in the airplane as well. So thank you very much for your hard work into safety. So um, when I was asked to prepare this little talk, um, I just want to make sure, and every time I'm asked for something, um, that I have the story that goes with the subject. Unless I have a case that I have investigated and I feel comfortable with, I don't take the offer and the, because um, we're here as an investigative board to provide information as to real cases. So if I have a real case that is going to support an idea, I will do it. If I don't have a real case, you are not going to hear me because that's outside of my scope. So tonight, I have a real case uh, for you. Um, it's not exactly the real case I would have liked to present because the real case I would have liked to present is under investigation, so I can't talk about it, unfortunately. But maybe at a later stage I, could, I will expand and I will pick this one. But I just need for the reports to be published, and sometimes it's, it's dramatically long, so I apologize for that. Anyway, does the theme is using simulators in safety investigations. So... This is what we're going to go through. First, I'm going to state the problem so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Then we'll talk about this real-life uh, story. Then I'll give you all the questions that can raise and the issues that we keep in mind when we use simulations uh, in the investigation. When we do investigations, as far as I'm concerned, I look at human performance. This is my specialty. So um, when we try to do this, we achieve some kind of an approach to the truth because we never really have the truth. It's just we try to, but it's, truth is something that's very difficult to capture. Uh, we take different angles. So we study now very thoroughly the pilot competencies and see the differences that there are between what they do and what is expected. And we also try to capture uh, the feel for, for the event using simulation, simulators, I mean full motion simulators, using uh, integration simulators, development simulators that are fixed, and also 
um, animations. So I, I'm not talk, going to talk about animations tonight, but maybe at some later stage we would talk about that, is we just put this cockpit voice recorder on the animation, which is the recreation more or less of the PFD and DE cam, uh, and then we have a good feel for what happened. But uh, the message I wanted to convey to you is that investigation is just a matter of crossing angles. Nobody individually has a truth, so we make sure we cross angles. We cross angles with our, in, in our organization with uh, people like me, with the operational thing, also with very smart engineers and and uh, investigator in charge. We cross angles with our uh, experts. And because we are the state of design and manufacture of Airbus, our experts are a lot of times Airbus. So within Airbus, we also cross angles. And we make sure that everybody's involved in the big cases from the beginning. So we build the situational awareness of the case together. So the message is we don't work alone. We work, we are ultra connected. We try to involve everybody and to listen to everybody, and sometimes newcomers are the ones who have the best idea because they're just new and it's a different angle. So multiplicity of angles makes make us approach the truth. So problem statement. How can simulators help documenting human performance issues in safety investigations? So we're not so much about technical stuff. I'm not technical. It's... I really restrict this to, to this is subject, huh? so I just want to make sure we were clear about that. So by simulators, we mean training simulators. So sometimes it's easy, it's, 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 it's available. So training simulators with motion simulators with all the limitations. So I wanted to show you one of my favorite, this one, because this one I did my SFI training on that, and I'm a simulator fan, so thank you. This one is CAE, I think. And also we mean engineering simulators. So engineering simulators is a whole different world. First, when you go to Toulouse, uh, uh, we go, it's a different place. It's an it's intelligent people's place. Uh, and the engineering simulators are fixed base, and they have a good visual now on the new ones. It's really super. It's like exactly being on the airplane. And on the back of that, you have, I mean, all these huge... Uh, wires and, and calculators and the good stuff, the good thing about this is they can basically simulate a lot of stuff and also uh, they can record things in the training simulator you, you, you can record little bits but you can't record everything, so we use both we use both, generally we go for, oh we go to the training simulator it's better, there's motion, then we think we think, ah, maybe the integration simulator is better, but actually sometimes we do both so uh, what do we mean by performance, human performance? Analyzing human performance in the course of investigations is very difficult uh, because for an engineer-dominated world, human performance is quite, you know, what, what is that? I prefer data, hard data. However, I have to say that we have tried to make the observation of human performance more objective, the most objective as we could, by adopting, since two years, the IKO slash EBT competencies. Meaning, the objective is to be able to look at what the crew does, break it down into some competencies, and, and evaluate this, establish this with behavioral markers. This made our lives super easy, because instead of 
subjectivity, uh, we had accurate um, markers. And the interest of this method is that it is shared. It is shared by the community. ICAO is now thinking through this uh, model. A lot of airlines are teaching their course <coughs> with this model. And we, as a board investigating incidents and accidents, we could not not use it because when you evaluate uh, an incident, you have to make sure that the way you evaluate it is very fair, is the fairest as you can. And being fair meaning observing and evaluating with the same model uh, used by the company to train the pilots and by the manufacturer to design its procedures on airplanes. So this is what we are trying to, to, to use now from one investigation to another so that the reader can expect can, you know, things to be consistent from one case to another. So by performance, uh, we mean technical performance, competencies. The first one that we look was application of procedures, naturally, which encompass standard calls and deviation calls. I wanted to make sure this was clear because it's really part of the problem. Uh, flight path management, whether uh, it's automatic or manual, and what the difficult point is not automatic or manual, it's switching between automatic and manual, is when the people start to intervene and act on the controls, this is a very difficult, tough thing to investigate for us. When was the correct timing? Did the pilot do it at the correct time or not? So changeover between automatic and manual and actions on control in dynamic situations. So if, if you can analyze a case by looking at data on a graph at like 10 different variations of parameters on a graph and tell me what happens in a dynamic situation without a simulator, then you are just a genius and I, I can't compete with you because it's very tough. It's very tough. So. The technical, the, the, the dynamic of situations is something that we do uh, investigate. And for the non-technical, which was always, you know, the very hard part for all these engineers and everybody had this word and this is not, we use the competencies and it has made my life so easy. So we look at situational awareness, startle, workload management, problem solving, decision making, communication and leadership and teamwork. I am telling you all this so that you know what we're, what we're doing, how we're operating. And this is, it, we will use this when we use the simulators. Simulators help us. So our mixed, main issues, our mixed issues are difficult. Monitoring. So we use simulators to try to get, grab a feeling of how that monitoring went and the threat and error management. And the overall thing about this method is that it allows you to investigate positive performance. So you're not only saying what went wrong, but you can also say what went right and what went as expected or not expected. So the issues are dynamic and unstable situations. Dynamic meaning, I mean, loss of control, which a lot of cases what we investigate and Automation issues is like 90% of what we investigate. It's very dynamic. So uh, we have to get into this dynamic, and obviously we need motion and movement to do this. And those situations are also very unstable, meaning we come from one controlled, more or less controlled state 
to an uncontrollable state in, in, in two seconds. And we have to know face by face where it is still controllable and where it's not controllable. So without a simulator, difficult. Complex. Now more and more what we investigate is extremely complex. It's human and technical interaction. But before the technical, there was an engineer who designed the system. So it was a human. It became technical. It's human and it becomes technical again. It's a whole chain from the design engineer to the airplane to the pilot to the aircraft controls. This whole chain, the continuity of the chain, is something that we want to establish and something that is sometimes not very well understood by pilots. And it's not possible, in my opinion, in, to investigate correctly uh, the cases, those dynamic cases with static data in the office. Forget it. So, real life short story. For maybe you, you, you've heard of this already, but uh, if you don't, it's a very interesting case. Uh, positive issue, so nothing really bad happened. So it's not an accident, it's just an incident. And it's an A340 uh, with an experienced crew. They go from Caracas to Paris. It's a clear night. They are level 350 in the cruise. Automation is engaged over Guadeloupe. Uh, Mach is decimal A3, and they have all automation engaged. So the situation is monitoring pilot uh, is they overhead a position report point, which is 18060 west. And I know this because I was born there, so I know the coordinates of the island. Anyway, they're in the position reporting, filling the flight log and taking care of, you know, looking at, looking at uh, headings and routes and whatever. So monitoring pilot is involved into this. Uh, the flying pilot, for him, is dinner time. So he has his tray just with his tray on, the, on, his, on his table. And weather is now turbulence time, meaning they, once they're just, both of them are involved in doing something, they're, they hit the dome of a CB. So they have to get the overspeed warning. Also, on, on Airbus, the overspeed warning is immediately red, and it's immediately uh, stressing. And they get, like, surprise, startled, unsettled. Then the pilot monitoring, who is not flying, uh, I, <laughs> I know it seems obvious, but he's not supposed to be flying. So this pilot monitoring is going AP off with one click. He's pulling three quarters of the side stick deflection for six seconds, which is a long time when you think of it. And he bangs, you know, right then left. So he has some kind of startle action on the control. So startle action on the control on Airbus starts to be a little bit difficult. So the thing is, he pulls. So um, what happens exactly is they get the overspeed. Mark decimulate seven, which is just a little bit over uh, MMO. Three seconds later, monitoring pilot is pitching up. Four seconds later, the vertical speed is almost 2,000 feet, 2000 feet per minute with Mach decimate 4. 20 seconds later, they reach 12 degrees pitch, which is a lot when you think of it at flight level 350. And the Mach is dropping to 0.76. 23 seconds later, they almost have 6,000 feet per minute. 53 seconds later, 
Now, there are 38,000 feet, over 38,000 feet. That's a 3,000 feet level bust. Mach is 0.66, so that gets really low. And one minute and 42 seconds after the beginning of the event, the flying pilot is finally pitching down. And he finally realizes that he's 3,000 feet above, and no, he doesn't have an autopilot. So that's kind of tough. So first officer, monitoring pilot, surprised, pulls, says nothing. The other one doesn't understand what's going on. Aircraft climbs, takes them one minute and 42 seconds to realize what happens. That's a lot. So this shows you a little bit of the excursion from point, point one to point nine. They lose situational awareness. And their uh, PFD looks like this. Seems very easy when it's really big here. But I mean, they actually have this. Speed trend is really way below where it should be. The flight director is just all over the place. Vertical speed is really high, and they're climbing. So they're not no noticing this. So what are real life, uh, sorry, undetected parameters on this? Initial pitch input, three quarters, six seconds, nobody notices. And the funny thing, the funny thing about this is that the co-pilot, when we interviewed him, I mean, it was tough for us because when we interviewed him, we said, did you do anything? The guy said, I never touched the stick, never in my life. I touched the stick. And he said, no way, no way, I did this. We had all the data, so all the data was consistent. We knew what we had, we couldn't, we couldn't make a mistake. And how, no matter what, we told him, he always maintained that he never touched a stick. People don't always lie. I think this guy generally never, never realized he touched a stick. So the, the maneuvers that people can make under stress are very uh, touchy to investigate because the memory, because it's, it's not going through their brain, is directly, directly going from there to their hand. It's not going through the brain. So there's no memories of this. So this is a problem of the startle. It's going to change the flight path in the long term in very important ways without being noticed and even recorded by the brain. So pitch attitude, up 12 degrees, very interesting. Uh, when we ask the captain, what did you see? What pitch did you have? The guy says, I don't know. The only one thing I remember is the wings were level. Meaning, in situations of stress, they can look at one axis and not necessarily the other. In this case of high altitude, the pitch is a more critical data or parameter than the roll angle because it conditions the way, you know, the, the angle of attack. And at, at those levels, you're very close from the, uh, uh, the stall angle of attack, although the aircraft is protected. But however, the, the pitch is very critical. And what he sees is the, is the bank. Uh, they don't notice that the autopilot is off during the climb. We'll see why. Sea cord, no memories. And altitude, not noticed. What do they uh, detect? Overspeed warning, speed high, and then when speed low, and when wings level. So from the start of the pitch up until, until the captain PF actually pitched down, uh, the high AOA protection was activated several times, meaning that the controls 
go down and the the aircraft protection played its full role. This is why it was just an incident. And the simulations that we did showed that with the high angle of attack protect without this high angle of attack protection, the aircraft would have kept ascending because it's in alternate law going on an NZ mode. So it keeps ascending until the triggering of the storm warning. So the consequences of this on a non-protected uh, aircraft would have been high. So what did we find out? The serious incident was due to an inadequate monitoring of the flight parameters, inadequate monitoring of the flight parameters, which led to failure, the failure the failure to notice the autopilot disengagement and a 3,000-level bust in RVSM, and that was due to a reflex action on the controls. What are the contributing factors? This is sometimes the airplane is, is nice, sometimes it's not so nice. So, but for the crew, first, inadequate application of SOP. And I don't know if some of you were in Montreal uh, not this year, the year before, but I made a little presentation. It's, it was a summary of five events that we investigated. Um, and those, uh, those events were all loss of control events. And the, the exercise was to find if there were upstream of the loss of control um, uh, a kind of pattern. And what we established is that before crews enter in, in enter those kind of loss of control situations, there is generally a problem of inadequate application of standard operating procedure. So uh, in this case, th nobody was basically watching the weather radar. And they didn't carry out the severe turbulence procedure, which required them to check if the autopilot was engaged or not. This is very easy to say when you are down on the ground and you're not flying in turbulence. But when you come to the analysis, we, we have to state the facts, you know, what is expected and what is not expected. Now we find reasons for this. So turbulence, extremely difficult to read parameters. Um, there were other cases, many other cases, when they enter turbulence and reading parameters and especially reading the FMA, which is not so big, uh, is, is, is difficult in turbulence. It's very stressful and it actually blurs your vision. Uh, and from a technical point of view, and this is, uh, maybe I should have seen, said this to you earlier, but the autopilot disengagement oral warning was covered by the overspeed warning. So when the overspeed warning went on, he disconnected the autopilot. And when the overspeed warning stopped, uh, it was too late for the autopilot disconnection warning to come after that. So we made recommendations to, to change this, but it's not so easy to change things on existing airplanes. However, this was a very highly contributive factor. So the guys in turbulence, the guys surprised. He's supposed to have a warning. He's not having the warning. Plus, it's turbul it's turbulence is all over the place. It makes it hard to monitor and read. So this is a circumstance of the accident, of the incident. So, of course, when you want to recreate this in the simulator, why is the simulator? It's just questions I'm asking because 
we ask a lot of questions. Sometimes we happen to have an answer, but not always. So we're always questioning. Was the simulator adequate to replay, adequate to capture the startle effect due to the overspeed warning? If you're on the simulator, let's say in a training simulator, you don't expect it. More or less, when you have this very red warning coming very, very loud, uh, the simulator was probably very well adapted to simulate this uh, startle effect and surprise effect and stress effect of the overspeed warning, although surprise, stress, and startle is not the same thing. Was it adequate to recreate the confusion linked to the absence of autopilot disconnect warning? Probably was. Probably was. As a pilot, you're expecting something. And you know, it's, this is really funny because when they design their EBT scenarios, they are looking for ways to puzzle and surprise pilots and this. And so they add warnings and one warning after one warning. But sometimes what is more disturbing is the absence of a warning that you should have. And this is just like a killer. You know, you should have this, you don't have this warning. So if your attention is regularly caught by the one, if you rely on a warning, for example, to do something, if the warning is, is like a trigger because you don't have the big picture, then this can create a lot of startle and misunderstanding. So this is interesting, missing warning. So is a simulator adequate to investigate the dynamic of the flight path when pulling on a side seat for six seconds? Honestly, I think yes, because when you pull for six seconds and you can realize with your body, you know, how long it is, how, how hard it is to, to act on the side stick, and then you can see the vertical speed, the speed at which the vertical speed is actually increasing. What is interesting, and that we found as well, is this is very seldom really realized by crews, that when you fly 5,000 feet, which is more or less the altitude from which some crews are going to start to fly manually until they reach you know, the runway threshold. It's more like 1,000 feet down, but let's say 5,000 feet. When they set up a pitch, they're going to have a certain vertical speed. Three degrees more pitch going to settle. They're going to have, let's say, 15, 1,500 feet per minute. When they set the same pitch increase at flight level 350, it's not going to be 1,500 feet per minute anymore. It's going to be almost 3,000 feet per minute. So... If you are used to flying low level with, you know, three degrees speech at normal speed to, to 50 knots and up there with normal Mach, you know, 0.78 or 0.82 depending on the airplane you're flying, then you, you have this difference. For the same muscle displacement, for the same muscle memory action, you're going to have very important, uh, very different results. It's not like three or four times, but it's twice and it's significantly more in an altitude, at an altitude where the margin to stall is much, much smaller. So this awareness by the crews that their action for, for an identical movement in a different altitude, you know, is going to lead very rapidly to different consequences if you have no protection is something very important that we, we actually you know, find out in the course of many investigations. But yes, when you're actually in the airplane, in the simulator, redoing this, you can capture this much more easily than if you read data. So yes, it was helpful. 
plus we could record a lot of stuff, so that was really great. So was it, was the simulator replay adequate to investigate weather issues like display of clouds on the flight radar? Absolutely not, okay? Training for radar is, I think, very difficult to be done, almost impossible in a simulator. So this is maybe why sometimes crews on all radars, I'm not saying the 380 or the 350 radars, which are uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, this is maybe a reason why, you know, the, sometimes they happen to go in the red and absolutely, you know, hail the aircraft and forget it. So displays of the clouds on the flight radar, we can reproduce this. However, it was the, 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 the moment where they actually entered in the event so we can't retrace this. We can't even record it. Ascending wings is very complicated. They can record it with the data, but if you want to replay this in a simulator, all these wins are possible, but sometimes it's, 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 it's not as accurate or precise as what they experience. So ascending winds, not, not easy. Heavy turbulence. Again, it's all about motion queuing, so heavy turbulence is, is not that easy. In a simulator, if you want to do this, you're going to, you know, add forces to the sim. I, I don't remember even in a simulator as a pilot being trained on an event where I could not read the, uh, the primary flight display. So in the, in the airplane, it happens. Vertical accelerations also, they are fooling devices. Uh, so when we want to, to find out vertically what, how, what, they, what it felt like. It, it's difficult in a simulator because the simulator is not reality. Plus, every individual has different reactions. So if I feel something in a simulator, I think it's significant. Other people don't feel it that way. So vertical accelerations, and sometimes it's very important in the way that you know, the, the thing happened to the pilot. It's very difficult to recreate as such uh, in the simulator and visual illusions as well. So there are limits. There are limits. The problem for us, because we are just human beings, is when we do things and we recreate, replay events, just to make sure we don't make a huge mistake, assume this is like the airplane, and, not, and in fact it's not at all like the airplane. It's, it's very tricky, and we ask a lot of questions, and, and we have to listen to a lot of people just to make sure that what we do is is you know, not a big mistake. So even though they are very tempting tools, especially as a pilot, you want to see immediately what it, what it looks like. Simulators do not recreate reality. They recreate some kind of reality. They are indispensable, but they don't recreate it all. So as a matter of fact, uh, the, not, the week before, not the week before, but the week before, I was with Airbus, and every year they make a big... Uh, conference where they invite all the investigation boards of all the world. So they come to Toulouse and Airbus presents all the new things uh, on their airplanes and their methodologies and it's very interesting. And this year there was a special morning where they took everybody to the integration or development engineering, I would say, simulators in the uh, vol and flight test and uh, they, they showed investigators the, the setting, all the uh, wirings, and they, you know, they made sure that they, each of them understood the limitations of, of the simulator. 
um, what it can do and what it cannot do. So having very clear objectives. When you go there, we make sure we want to demonstrate something. It's just not like general feel for. No, we must have clear objectives. What exactly, what do we expect from the replay? And sometimes it's very nice because we can really find about very complex system issues. Recently, we've investigated a, a very technically complex issue. And if you go to the uh, training si simulator and you try to reproduce the failure, you're not going to be able to do it. And the, one of the flaws there were is like, just make sure that the electronic version and the software that is that, that of the airplane is the software of the simulator. Because if you ever do a one-size-fits-all thing saying, oh, it's going to work, it's not going to work. Okay? So making sure with the engineers that the software of the simulator is the correct version and exactly the one that is, uh, was in the airplane is important. And it's, there are a lot of different softwares involved, in fact. So it's not only one software. It, it, it requires them a lot of thinking of energy just to make sure that what they have, the electronic version of the simulator, is correct. If it's not, we're not going to you know, produce any valid report, and, and it's, it's going to be wrong. So just finding about very complex system issues uh, is, is very, very great help. And also to form a sound operational judgment about an event, knowing what you're looking for. Even I found myself in the simulator for the week before, we did, we did a, actually uh, an engineering uh, simulator for a case. And I found myself taking video of the test pilot's hand on a side stick, <laughs> just to see, to document, you know, just to document the amplitude of the movements that would have been necessary to recover from a certain situation and compare it to his recreation of what the pilot inputs were. So you can actually video a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's not what you expect. I never expected to do this when we started the session. We wanted to document very technical stuff and investigate some you know, vertical speed things. But I ended myself videoing the hand of the test, test pilot. And I th it would have been nice if he had a, a white glove, in fact, because it was very dark. So next time, I will take some kind of fluo glove just to make sure I see the displacement. So sometimes you find stuff. Sometimes you're disappointed. You think, ah, oh, I, I, I think this is going to be the case. And then you're there, and then, no, nah, it's not working. It's not what you thought. So good. Forget it. Come up with another idea. Test it. So that's fun. So beware of traps. Is the simulator software strictly identical to the airplane event? This is really the, the worst, one of the worst mistakes you could make. Uh, is the event happening in the envelope of the simulator? Because they all have their limitation. Now everybody's working on the loss of control and now the upset recovery uh, because it's becoming an issue on the events that we have. Before, I think when they designed the simulators in the first place, you know, they thought the aircraft is protected all the time, so we're not going to be looking in those areas of high, uh, very, I would say, very low, 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 low frequencies. Now, like, training has been progressively extended, as you know. Uh, so sometimes we investigate stall events, uh, how do you want to investigate a stall event in a simulator which 
doesn't have a correct flight envelope. So it's a question that we ask ourselves is, to what angle of attack is this simulator valid? So we go and we stop. When, when the, the angle of attack is not valid anymore, we stop looking and we stop thinking. So we make sure that what we have is, has reasonable fidelity. If you go to a training simulator and you do a post-developed stall just to have a feel for it, can you imagine the kind of mistake that you can make? I mean, it's, nobody's going to do this anymore. Is Buffett involved? Is Buffett involved? So let me tell you about my experience with this. I investigated, I mean, Air France 447 for a long time, a long time. So in the course of this, we did, um, of course, we, we'd done some simulator testing with a buffet in the simulator, but also uh, with courtesy of Airbus, we were in the actual a, uh, Airbus A340 test airplane to recreate uh, the buffet conditions until an angle of attack that the test pilots could cope with, which is more or less 15 degrees. Above this, they are not trying, and the only ones that we know that tried didn't make it. So 15 degrees is, was really their limit. And so we wanted to, to see what it felt like. So they did it, and believe me, it's just me. It may be very subjective, but I have done some training, a lot of trainings in the simulator on the Airbus, and what I felt in the simulator as a buffet queue was somewhat different from what I felt in the actual airplane. Okay. The actual airplane is, is, is extremely strong, is extremely frightening. I'm saying we tried the onset buffet until the deterrent buffet. The more you are pulling on the control, the more the buffet is increasing, and it's very, very impressive. Okay. Once you have lived this for yourself with your you know, body and muscles, you can never forget it. And you can never forget it, especially if it's associated to the stall warning. So it's the association of clues which make the, 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 the identification of the stall situation interesting. It's not one thing and another thing. It's the fact that everything is associated and all your senses are activated at the same time. So this would be the objective. So Buffett is Buffett involved, very important. Buffett in the airplane is different, is different from what it is in the simulator. And Buffett is also making an incredible noise. In my profession, unfortunately, unfortunately, but it's really hard to say fortunately, I have to listen to cockpit voice recorders. Okay. It's not fun. We do it because we have to understand what's going on. Um, Verbal communication is only 20% of the total communication in the airplane. A lot of other things going body language, and I mean, so it's only a small part. It's not the truth. It's only 20% of the truth. And when you hear the cockpit voice recorder, all you hear, and the first time I heard this on Air France 447, is the airplane vibrating, and the airplane is talking. The airplane is literally talking to the pilots. It's, it's unbelievable. So... The noise associated to the very specific vibration, associated to the storm warning, are the three symptoms which pilots are going to be faced with when they go into that kind of situation. So 
if Buffett is involved in an event, Stoll is, is involved in an event, this is all these three things would be interesting to reproduce in a simulator if you want, you know, to improve things. Uh, it's it's interesting, very interesting how to see the combination of stuff. I'm not talking about the impossibility to arrest a descent rate, instability in pitch, instability in roll. I mean, all this comes, but sometimes later. But the first thing that you can hear is the buffet, is, is the vibration and the noise. The airplane is literally talking to people. I, I'm not sure people listen to the airplane anymore, at least in the commercial world. In, in test, flight test world, they listen to the airplane. But I mean, just listen. So, who exactly is flying and forming an operate judgment about the event? Sometimes we're able to do it ourselves, but we're not perfect. I don't fly anymore, for example. You know, I do sim. I have a lot of flying, but I'm not a current pilot in the airplane anymore. So sometimes we ask the test pilot, who's specially trained to, to reproduce the movements to actually uh, operate this simulator. But the test pilot, whatever training and super training he has, is a test pilot. So he has his reactions as a test pilot. And also, when we listen to him, we carefully listen to him, and we also have to put what he says into a certain context which seems reasonable to us. So it's a lot of critical thinking, critical thinking all the time. So this is just, you know, the traps that we are trying to, 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 to avoid, and there are lots of them. So we're very cautious about that. So as a conclusion, yes, simulators are key tool investigation, so please keep on designing good simulators so we can investigate the cases. We need you. Okay. That's for sure. So keep on the hard work. We're not quite there yet. Uh, and they provide invaluable operational and technical data, which, again, are a complement to FDR, CVR, crew interviews, animations, you know, that we can make. So it's one angle out of a multiplicity of angles that help us approach the truth. And of course, make sure, if we can, it doesn't happen again. So, thank you very much. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.